Thank you, Connie. I, I couldn't resist that. I just enjoy so much coming back to this place, which gave me such delight when I was your age in another place, but by the same name. And it just encourages me to see that new generations of people being called and raised by God to worship him and to be involved in his mission. So thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. I invite you to keep your Bibles open at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you have them. And we'll look at the context a little bit. It's interesting to me that the last thing the disciples asked Jesus before he re returned to the Father had to do with a 400-year-old paradigm. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The last words of the Old Testament, if you look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, promised the return of Elijah, who would restore all things. And Jesus himself affirmed that and uh, underlined that in Matthew 17, 11, But he pointed out that Elijah had already come in the person of John the Baptist. And it's understandable that the Jewish disciples of Jesus, I underlined Jewish, were looking for the kingdom to be restored to Israel. Israel was God's chosen people, his treasured possession. Their whole lives were consumed with that hope. And so they asked, will it happen now? The question was wrong on two counts. Number one, as Jesus points out in verse 7, timing is the responsibility of God the Father alone. And we should remind that as a warning when we uh, try to analyze when he'll come again and the fulfillment of the kingdom will be recognized. But the second point was the kingdom wasn't just for Israel. They had forgotten what Isaiah had written so many years before in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. I love this verse. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I wonder if that was echoed in what Jesus then said. Because it was that context that Jesus said these memorable words in Acts 1.8. And as I was asked by Dave to, to speak on this verse, I thought to myself, how many sermons have you heard on Acts 1.8? I had to say to myself, how many sermons have I preached on Acts 1.8? But there it is. And maybe there's more to learn from it. And that was my hope as I prepared for today. But among the things that I have pointed out previously to people I've spoken about Acts 1.8 with, I've said the following. Number one, the Holy Spirit and his power is the key to witnessing. The disciples were to see what that looked like in 10 days on the day of Pentecost. But Jesus, in effect, said to the disciples, don't leave home without him. Don't dare venture into mission until you have been endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. Until the Holy Spirit comes in power, don't leave wherever you are in the name of Christ. And wherever you are may not be home. And that's the second thing I like to point out. Many, many people say, you know, the Lord has given us this uh, command to begin at home and take the gospel to the ends of the world. 
Jerusalem was not home for the disciples, as you know. They all came from Galilee, except Judas, and he's off the scene now. He came from Jerusalem. The rest all came from Galilee, where Jesus grew up. And that's probably why he knew them and why he was able to call them uh, so suddenly they could respond, because they already knew him from their hometowns. That was home. And you'll notice how the uh, angels addressed them in verse 11. Men of Galilee, that's what they were. They were men of Galilee. What was Jerusalem for the disciples? And that's where they were right now when Jesus said these words. They had been in Galilee last week for Matthew 28, but now they'd been asked to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Jerusalem was the place of opposition, the place of hatred, the place of persecution, the place of death. But Jesus said, start there. Maybe more he was saying, start wherever you are. And right now, you happen to be in Jerusalem, but other people today are in Tripoli, in Benghazi, in Cairo, and all kinds of places, Sana'a, the place of opposition and place of persecution, the place of chaos. And Jesus, I believe, is saying to them, that's where you begin. You begin where you are, whatever it's like. Don't ever wait until it's safe to share the gospel. The world just isn't like that anymore. And the Great Commission in Acts 1.8 never hint that we should wait until there's a red carpet out for us, until people want to hear the message. No, we start in Jerusalem. Third thing I usually point out is that witnessing is for everyone. We all know that some people are called by God to be evangelists, and this is a special gift of the Spirit. But all of us are called to witness. All of us are called to tell the facts as we know them from personal experience of Jesus Christ. The other thing I would say is that we should say it with words. I hope you aren't too enamored of the rumored saying of St. Francis of Assisi. Wherever you go, preach the gospel. Whenever necessary, use words. You know, St. Francis himself was a fire-breathing, in-your-face evangelist. He used words, let me tell you. And in fact, the only, the first time that we ever see in print that St. Francis of Assisi said these words is 1990. And St. Francis wasn't alive in 1990. So I don't think he said those words. They're nice words, and they make a point, but they aren't what Jesus is saying here. When we are witnesses, we speak on behalf of Christ. Uh, a colleague of mine named Norman Holbrook tells about his early days in Nepal. How many people here know Norman Holbrook? Just curious, raise your hand. You know, he's an interesting guy. I was at a meeting of Presbyterians, Anglicans, Methodists, and United Church people recently, and I just casually mentioned that I knew Norman Holbrook. Virtually everybody in the room knew Norman Holbrook. He's an evangelical missionary with world concern right now. He was with InterServe. And finally, somebody suggested we should all buy stickers that say, I know Norman Holbrook. But be that as it may, he tells this story about his early days in Nepal, before his Nepali was fluent enough to, to witness in Nepali. And he just counted on his acts of love and his behavior and his attitude to win people to Christ by his behavior. Until the day he overheard, overheard two Nepalis talking together with him in the rice paddy field where they were working. And he heard one Nepali say to the other, 
What horrific sin did this man commit in a previous life that he should be condemned to leave his home in Canada and live in Nepal? <laughs> because you see, if you believe in karma, that's what happens. And from that day on, Norman decided to start using words to explain the truth in Christ. And if we really want people to understand the truth, we have to use words. Words that match our behavior and our attitude and our actions. But there's something else about you will be my witnesses. We know that the same word that we have here for witness is the word from which we get in English, martyr. We do well to note that. Last year, an estimated 171 Christians were martyred for their faith. It's not an unusual number. It ranges between 160,000 and 180,000 every year. And we're not talking about Christians who die or Christians who are killed or murdered. We're talking about Christians that because of their faith, because of who they were or because of what they were saying, were killed. Those are true martyrs. They, too, are Jesus' witnesses. It was brought particularly close to me and my wife, Carol, in October. I'd been invited to speak to the workers in Afghanistan. Don't call them missionaries, because they aren't. But they are Christian workers. They're followers of Jesus. They're representatives of Jesus Christ. And we were invited to speak to them at their annual conference. Because the security situation in Afghanistan is so tight, they all fly out. In this case, they flew to Sharjah, one of the United Arab Emirates, where we had our conference. But Carol and I had been looking forward for a long time to then traveling back into Kabul with Libby Little and Tom, two inter-serve missionaries and good friends. Uh, I had been there many another time with Tom, under, particularly under the Taliban when they were ruling Afghanistan. He was a wonderful man. He'd been there 33 years. He raised three daughters in Kabul. It's quite remarkable. He loved Afghans, and Afghans loved him. August the 5th, I got an email from Libby Little saying, we are just so excited about it, seeing you and Carol in Kabul, because you'll see how different it is now. On August the 6th, we got an email saying, I guess you've heard that my darling Tom has been killed. Returning from an eye camp where they'd been many times before, the Taliban met them and slaughtered all 10 of them in cold blood. He, too, was a witness to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus talked to the disciples about the end times, he said, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, and you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. That's what it means to be a witness, too. And he says the Holy Spirit will help us to witness in places that you and I could hardly imagine. Another friend of mine, this time in Pakistan, Dan Babington, came to Pakistan 40 years ago, and he started a, a uh, construction company, an engineering construction company. And his goal was mission, purely. He wanted to build the best houses and office buildings in Pakistan. And interesting, in the earthquake in Gilgit, when most of the buildings collapsed, all the buildings that Dan's company built stood strong. The name of his company is Zor Engineers. Zor means strength in Urdu. And Dan had a terrific testimony, except for one problem. Right from the beginning, he refused to pay bribes. And if you know the construction company in other parts of the world, you don't do anything without a bribe. 
And so people would come and lay false charges against him because he wouldn't give them the, the grease for their palms that they were looking for. And invariably, he ended up in court. So much so that Dan had to hire, I think it was three full-time lawyers, just to fight the court cases that were false accusations because he didn't pay bribes. At one point, you know, the poor guy never got to his construction company. He was in court so much. And I said, Dan, give up. You know, you came to Pakistan, in this case 30 years ago, to witness for Jesus Christ, and all you're doing is spending your time in court. Do you know what his response was? Supreme Court justices also have to hear the gospel. <laughs> yeah, and it was amazing how many times a, a, a really high court judge, because that's where you got justice. At the low courts, you could bribe the judges. 500 rupees a day, and they would decide in your favor, or your enemy's favor, whichever paid them the 500. But once you got to the higher courts in Pakistan, there were reliable people who really were concerned about justice. And more than once, a chief justice would say to Dan Bavington, Mr. Bavington, why don't you just give in and do things the way everybody else does, instead of causing you and us so much trouble? And of course, inevitably, he said why he didn't pay bribes. Every time he was in court, he ended up witnessing to the gospel in very explicit terms. And God had brought him to that place to witness to those people as Jesus had promised. In today's chaotic world, the Holy Spirit will lead you into unbelievable places to witness and to die. And that's the gift God has given to us as witnesses for him. Well, the other phrases here, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Missiologists like to point out what they call the Samaria Principle. Probably you're familiar with it. Jerusalem consisted of people who were near culturally to the disciples and near geographically. If you move from Judea into Samaria, then you're amongst people who are culturally different from you, but geographically nearby. When you go to the ends of the earth, those are people who are distant culturally and distant geographically. And so you develop the Samaria principle of reaching out to people who are in your midst but are culturally different from you. And this is the rationale for the whole ministry to the diaspora in Toronto and elsewhere where we find so many ethnic groups living here, right across the street from us usually. And it's what has led to the current emphasis on multicultural churches and are intentionally planting them. Ends of the earth, apparently to the disciples, meant Rome. I can't verify that, but that's what commentators say. We can apply ends of the earth globally. But you know, that's a bit of an old paradigm. Sure, we should think of it globally, but we should also think of it sociologically. And I don't know if this is a word, but we should apply it cybernetically. Basically, the ends of the earth means go everywhere and be my witnesses. Now that's the paradigm I've been using since I started thinking about Acts. It's a 50-year-old paradigm. It was developed after World War II. So to look for a new lens, and I wondered what Acts 1-8 would look like in, in 2011, I went to the center of all mission thinking and freshness and uh, entrepreneurship and everything else. That's the Tim Center, <laughs> right down the hall from you. I mean, if you want to hear what's happening in the mission world, or you want input and counsel and everything else, go.
go across the hallway to the Tim Center. So I went to Robert Cousins, and I said, what, what is the current understanding of Acts 1-8? And how, we, how do we interpret the things that were said there by Jesus? And he referred to Neri Santos, interesting guy, Filipino church planter who was commissioned by his church in the Philippines to come to Toronto to plant churches. Interesting character. So we asked him what his understanding of Acts 1-8 was. He says, well, my Jerusalem is Toronto. My Samaria is Peel County. And the ends of the earth is Vancouver. <laughs> and that's because his world at this point is Canada. That's where he was sent to plant churches. Very interesting. The way he operates. He and his people gather together the Filipino expatriate communities and gather them into churches, mission-minded churches. They're open to multiculturalism and they're committed to multiculturalism, but they follow the natural links of Filipinos wherever they are. So he's planted three churches so far in the Toronto area. He's going elsewhere with the same thing in mind. But he has the most interesting hybrid of two paradigms of mission. One which Donald McGavran proposed 40 years ago. Actually, his, his book, Understanding Church Growth, was published the year I went overseas for the first time. And that, in that, McGavran's thesis is that we should follow the natural family and cultural lines of people who come to Christ. That's the way the gospel spreads most quickly. And Don Gertz wrote an article in Missio Dei which followed Paul's pattern, which affirms that same thing. But you know, at the same time, Santos and his congregations have this understanding of multiculturalism. So it's this hybrid be between homogeneous unit churches, meaning Filipino identified churches, who are committed to multiculturalism and expanding beyond their own little community. It's, a, it's just a wonderful paradigm, I would say. And if the password for the disciples' paradigm of mission was Israel, that's what opened up their understanding, and if the password of my old paradigm of mission was intercultural, the password for Neri's paradigm of mission is transnational. Because what they're looking at now, and they're working in cooperation with the Baptists in the States and in the Philippines and in Canada, CBOQ, and they're looking at reaching the Filipinas in Hong Kong. So you see, they've got this understanding that you follow the Filipinas wherever they are, because that's how the gospel travels most efficiently, most quickly. And then you plant churches which are open to all the nations. It's an interesting thesis. Well, having said all that, I've given you three different paradigms of mission. The Jews, mine, and Nairi's. What remains of Acts 1.8? You know, there's one, three things common to all those understandings of mission. And I'll start at the end. Number one, we must be ready to proclaim Jesus and even die for him. Any paradigm of mission has to say we are his witnesses. But secondly, we must disciple all the ethnic and otherwise defined groups in ever-expanding circles, from local to global, from geographical to virtual. But most of all, the third thing they all have in common is we must wait for the Holy Spirit's anointing to get the job done. And that's my challenge to you this morning. And to close, I want to read what Jesus said in another place to his disciples. 
And this, in a way, is another Great Commission, version of the Great Commission. But it shows how we are co-workers with the triune God. Listen to these words from John 15, 26 and 27. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you sort of think you can relax. Because the Holy Spirit's going to do this work of witnessing, of testifying about the Lord Jesus. The very next words are, and you also must testify, for you have been with me since the beginning. And my prayer is that that will be true for all of us. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that in this impossible commission, humanly speaking, you have made it possible because of your Holy Spirit. So come, anoint us, we pray, Holy Spirit. Grant us the power which is only in you and enable us by your grace to be witnesses to the saving faith, the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.